Welcome everyone. This is Distance Traveled, a podcast to signify the literal and metaphorical journeys of amazing Indian witches. Today is special because I am honored to introduce the person I'm in conversation with today. Dr. Linda L. Cook. That's more than just a name for so many people here at the University Argument. She's an emotion, tradition, and a person so rare and significant in so many lives. Dr. Kuhn is a fierce historian with phenomenal education from James Madison University and the University of Virginia. But what makes her special is her influence at the University of Arkansas for three decades now. From leading the Fulbright Study Abroad program in Rome to the Honors Humanities Project here at home, the Religious Studies program, chairing the History Department, the Associate Dean of Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, to currently being at the helm of the Honors College as its Dean, where she has brought in people like Dalai Lama to Jane Goodall. Dr. Kuhn has done it all. Along the way, she's written two books, scores of papers and articles, received the highest teaching awards the University of Arkansas has to offer, and mentored over two dozen students on her thesis. And this is me being brief. So when Dean Kuhn agreed to share her journey with me, I was ecstatic because there's so much to learn and discover from her life story. Thank you so much, Dean Kuhn, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Smith. No problem. So let's, let's begin from your early high school years. Where did you grow up and what were you like in high school? I grew up in Northern Virginia. I went to high school in Alexandria, Virginia, so not too far from... Washington, D.C. I was a, a strange high school student. I hung out with a group of weirdos. Never quite fit in, but now that I'm older looking back, I think, good. Well, nice. What are your favorite childhood memory? Favorite childhood memories. It's hard when you get older. But <laughs> I certainly enjoyed hiking with the family going to the beach, which we did every year to Florida. Um, since we live so cl close to Washington, D.C., seven miles away from downtown, spent a lot of time downtown, which is what I remember the most. Going to all the museums, back in the day when you could walk, park right in front of the Smithsonian with no problem. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> it was a little bit more of a small town back then, but I certainly spent I don't know how much time in the nation's capital, from the museums to the Folger, going to Shakespeare plays, to roller skating on the lovely slick marble around the mall. Wow, that's, that's great. Okay, so now, as I was reading about you, you had mentioned in your book, Sacred Fictions, that your brother Eric inspired your interest in history. How did he do it? And did that help you decide in your high school that you wanted to study history and that too at James Madison University? Yes, uh, we were obsessed by history as children, always read biographies, mostly the pre-modern world. Latest we ever were interested in, well, we like Tudor Stewart history. But um, I don't know, we just were always into it. We always watched documentaries about historical things. Really preferred, you know, BBC shows like I, Claudius, which is all about the early Roman emperors to most things. James Madison is a school that uh, a lot of students from high schools in Northern Virginia go to. It's in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. It's a stunning site. They had a great history department. So, yeah, it was a beautiful campus. Right. 
So, so how did you end up at only James James Madison? Were you considering something else? How was the process like? Yeah, I applied to several schools, William and Mary and uh, University of Virginia. But I thought back then I was a little awkward and strange, so I decided to go to a little bit smaller school. Um, I ended up in Virginia anyway for graduate school. So uh, I think Madison was a good choice for me. I think I always tell students to this day, go where it's the right fit. You know, it's not always about sort of a perception of what the best school is. You got to figure out what's the right school for you. Okay, so what were you like in college years? How was the experience informative of who you have become now? Well, I uh, was obsessed by history, so I majored in it, though I was first a math major. I know, shocker, three semesters. And because I think a lot of people told me that I should never major in history, because what can you do with it? <laughs> uh, which, of course, was not true in an urban legend. Historians are great at business. They're great in philanthropy. They're great in the academy. They go to law school. They can do anything. So I switched to history, and then I started taking languages also, which was smart to go to grad school. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that I, I, I took every history course I could get. Nice. That, that's great, because that, that takes me to my next question. You, why did you choose to pursue your master's and doctorate in history, and specifically the Middle Ages, gender and sexuality, and the world cultures? Why those three things? Well, I've always been interested in religion and the history of religion. Um, I was obsessed by the Middle Ages for a long time. University of Virginia had a fine early medievalist who's a very well-known papal historian. And so I went to the University of Virginia actually to do early modern history, but I took a course with this one faculty member. This is always how it works, right? And I converted to the time period of 300 to 900. Never regretted it since. But actually coming to the University of Arkansas, I branched out to what I would say is global medieval. And I've been very lucky to teach for a long time in the Honors Humanities Project where we actually would take a century like the 8th century around the globe which I think actually in the end of the day is a better approach than just during Europe, you know. Right. So you would take the 8th century, uh, you would travel to early medieval Japan, and then maybe to Baghdad, and then back around to the Carolingian West, and over to Islamic Spain. So it's a really smart way of doing history, and it's, you know, the way history should go, is that every field should have a more global lens. Wow. That's it's true. And you truly have done it in not just teaching and learning. You've done it in other aspects, and I want to get to that later. But but as you talked about coming to the University of Arkansas and branching off, you said in a UATV interview that I love Fayetteville. I came here from Virginia, and Fayetteville reminded me of it. It's a classic college town with a great sense of community and a lot of fine arts as well as intellectual action. If the town's similarity to Virginia brought you here, what kept you here? Well, it's a great job. I mean, to get a job at a research university in the United States, I remember when I got this job, my uh, graduate advisor said to me, well, you've left behind most of the academy just by getting a, you know, a job at a flagship research university. It's a great history department. It always was, but I, right now it's phenomenal. I could recommend you to take any faculty member in history, and I know that you, Smith, have high standards for teaching. It's such a good research teaching faculty. They combine the two aspects beautifully. Every single historian on this faculty is a great researcher, but they bring the excitement 
about what they're doing in their own research straight into the classroom. So the history department is a big draw. Um, but the students, I've always liked. I'll never forget my first class I taught at the University of Arkansas 30 years ago. Those students were amazing. I had four first-generation students, one who described herself as a backwoods Baptist from outside of El Dorado, Arkansas. And they all went on to get PhDs. This is the first class I taught here, and the backwoods Baptist is now a full professor at the University of Mississippi. And so I came here, I was teaching at a prestigious small liberal arts college, and I was plopped down into Arkansas, and that first class blew me away. I couldn't believe the students right there with me in a way that I didn't have in the so-called more prestigious liberal arts background. So I've never regretted staying here. Fayetteville's awesome. How about that? That, that, <laughs> that is true. And I mean, I, I agree. You know, things you would see at a bigger institution are here and that's what shocks people the most so many of my professors who had come here and just took a job and then they were like oh my goodness i never knew about this you know they, they truly have fallen in love and never left so i think you resonate with that and that's great and we are lucky to have you actually now i want to kind of deviate because in the same interview you talked about your favorite book being the augustine of hippo in that, Peter Brown writes, not only did Augustine live in an age of rapid and dramatic change, he himself was constantly changing. So much of this resonates with who you are as a person, at least to me. You are one of the most phenomenal adapters of the era. You have created accounts on Snapchat, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, everything, you name it. You send files in chats on Zoom now, you know, instead of emailing them. And, and so much more as the pandemic hit, you created courses that were in time over overnight. You brought in the governor of Arkansas to talk to students and, and you didn't even charge for this class. This was just, you were offering it to not just Arc Arkansans, but anybody who was interested. And you put it out on YouTube for the world to see. And that is something rare. So I wanna know how this book has influenced you in doing all of this. <laughs> St. Augustine. Well, I just taught him in my History of Christianity class. Um, yeah, this is a biography that was written in the late 60s by one of the most famous people in my field who just retired from Princeton. And he wrote it, I guess it was partially his dissertation, but it documents one of the most fascinating stories in Western history, and that's Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, but he was someone that had a long, weird spiritual road <laughs> mm -hmm. to finally converting to Christianity after embracing multiple intellectual and religious faiths. He was super neurotic, full of self-doubt, and he detailed the life of the late Roman world to such an extreme and meticulous degree that you get information that you would never have in any other kind of source. He was from what is nowadays Algeria, lived in a small village, but he worked his way to become a professor in Rome and then a professor in Milan, only to come back to North Africa to be a bishop. So wow. he's, it's an insane story. It's beautifully depicted by Peter Brown, if you ever have time to read it. Um, but yeah, Augustine, innovator, that's what we would say nowadays in the Walton College of Business. He was an right. innovator. He was a theological innovator, but he was even a kind of social commentary critic that, uh, unbelievable. So, so do you believe 
that this book influenced the decisions you made later on in doing so many different things in changing during different times? I don't know cuz I don't know if it's that straightforward. Um he certainly liked the intellectual ride. Right. <laughs> he right. spent time as a manichaean, which is a very eastern religion. Wow. That part, I always liked that part about him that he was always trying something different. So I guess in that regard but I really love the self-doubt and the, um, I don't know, he's, he's an individual who's constantly aware of his fallen nature nice. as a human being. So that was refreshing. It's wow. not very uh, American. It's not very 21st century, but we'll come back to it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that is actually very good. And now I just briefly want to know a chronology because when you got here, you started teaching history but you have morphed into so many different roles and and you're now the dean of honors college and in that you have had so many firsts how do you go from being a professor right like people we know and meet every day to going into administration and and leadership roles and and how does that journey look like for people like me and many other students who are looking up to you and be like man dean coons the one you know I want to be like her. I want to at least emulate some of those qualities. So how was how was the journey like? Can you tell us about that? Um I fell into administrative roles like uh, the first one I have is director of humanities, which was interdisciplinary work. The program's still going. In fact, it's been built into a center, so it's really quite brilliant. Then I became department chair, which is probably the most valuable thing that one can do because there's a lot of faculty management issues, but it, it's an important and difficult job. But this is the best job on the planet. Dean of the Honors College, oh my God. It's innovation all the time. The students are super amazing. We sit around in uh, the Honors College like madmen in the show, designing crazy classes and trying to figure out what students would like. So it's always changing and it has many moving parts. Okay, okay. That 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 is really good because it sounds crazy, but... That is what happened. You kind of just happened upon the director of the program and then from there on you have moved on. And you never really started out as, oh, I want to be the dean, right? No, never. And Not even on the radar. <laughs> see, in, in most of the people, that's how it is because like you are such a natural leader. And, and that's what amazes me the most. So in terms of being the chair of history department... as you said there's a lot of management of professors which were at least a year or two ago before you were not the chair were your colleagues and friends and then you're kind of managing them making sure things are going right you know you're like the moderator when things are going right they don't know what job you did well or not that is true and and <laughs> so how how was that like and like how how did that change in role affect your relationships with your colleagues or did it or did it not well i was lucky in the history department that it was such a successful group that in a way they were easy to manage historians are hermits so they like to go go into their separate offices and write their books and teach their classes um but i think it's getting resources for everyone in the department is hard that'd be hard any school you're at So it's constantly an uh it's kind of a wrestling match it's often with um 
positioning a department to get resources and positioning them to get on the radar in terms of their research, especially in the humanities. I know you're coming from biomedical engineering. It's different in the STEM disciplines, but sometimes humanists who do great research don't get the kind of spotlight that some of their colleagues in STEM do. I enjoyed it. It was hard, you know. <laughs> it is uh, sometimes your, as a colleague of mine once said, sometimes your colleagues look very different from the chair side of the desk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and a couple things from your response because that that brings me to light, you know, just like qualities you have inherently that that I feel like not just should be highlighted, but try to be, you know, missions of my life at least. Because you said one trying to get the spotlight for people who don't get the spotlight usually at least and and as i was researching i have found that early on from like i went through archives of newswires and i would search on newswire and there would be years like 2013 2014 that come up with your name like 16 17 entries but it had nothing about you you were trying to highlight the stuff that was going on in the department in terms of research in terms of books being written, in terms of people like visiting scholars being, uh, you know, who were coming here and teaching students. And that was, to me, not just phenomenal, but refreshing because you were trying to just like, hey, look at these people, you know, they're doing good work. Did that come naturally to you? Were you making an intentional effort to do that? Or... Or what was it like to do that? Well, I actually think that's the chair's job. Is That's why I think a lot of... Um, I know, that's why it's hard. Because your job is to create a space for other people to succeed. Not to push yourself out there. You know, that's... Uh, I don't know, I thought it was pretty natural, actually. That And that is, that is yeah. pretty good. Um, well, it's a great department. I mean, oh my God, they... Well, they're still great. Yeah. What and was, uh, history department had a, has a record of chairs. It's part of the culture of that department that the chairs promote constantly other colleagues. So I inherited kind of a system like that, I will say. That, yeah. that, that, and that, that truly is very good. So as you move from your role of the chair, you started you know, being the director of religious studies program and also associate dean both at the same time. So in terms of the classes you taught in the religious studies program, how was the experience like? Not just being a director, but also a teacher. Well, I wouldn't want to ever give up teaching. I mean, I'm teaching right now. I have a class of almost 70 students. So that's, yeah, I think more administrators should teach because you should always be right in front of what why we're here, right. <laughs> which is actually students. Research is great and important, but at the end of the day, as my advisor told me a long time ago, the le- true legacy are your students. They're the ones that carry on. So, um, yeah, well, being director of religious studies is a great job. <laughs> you get to work with faculty across campus that do religion but aren't from your department. We brought in some awesome speakers back in the day, including Jeffrey. I'll never forget Jeffrey Hamburg from Harvard Art History. Gave a phenomenal lecture on nuns, artists who are nuns in late medieval Germany. <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah, it's a great intellectual job. That, and the students are good that want to go into religion. And I wish we had a, a religious studies department. That would be... Yeah. 
not just a program, but its own thing. And we were all religions. We weren't just a program focused on Western religions. Yeah. Wow. That, that's truly great. Now, as you took on the associate dean role for the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, and that was from 2013 to 2015, what did you enjoy the most about that role? And how did it prepare you for honors college deanship? <laughs> well, I'd say the best thing about it was trying to help chairs deal with uh, management positions. I worked with an awesome group of Fulbright chairs, and I, could, I watched how they were struggling with things I used to struggle with. And it's not that people are ill-intentioned. It's just there's, you know, I was over, let's say, music and other departments where the resources are really tight. It's just, it's good to see things work out well for a chair or a faculty member that are struggling. So I think it was the management of faculty was always the best part. I was going to say that for the uh, best part preparing me for this is, well, that part's always good, dealing with faculty. <laughs> but um, getting out there and meeting people from other colleges, because the dean of the Honors College works with all the colleges. So that was useful. And in terms of doing things on the administrative type, as you were also teaching. Always. What <laughs> did you get, get, I guess, like caught off guard with? Because as you were in this administrative roles, you weren't trained in it, but you were very good at it. But there were some things, were there some <laughs> things that you felt like, why is this even part of the job? Well, there are, um, unfortunately, there are times when faculty behave badly. Of course, I do like St. Augustine, so I share his view of human nature, which is that humans tend to do the wrong thing. <laughs> So I'm not that surprised by it, but I have to say some of the examples we dealt with back in the day were pretty extraordinarily theatrical. <laughs> that was a little surprising. Okay. It's kind of surprise there were situations that were allowed to go on for years I because see. folks were afraid of conflict. Mm. Yeah. You bring up a good point. And not just folks, I would say I personally am guilty of that. I believe in peace and harmony to the point that I will try to please people, or a lot of people do this, that they just don't want to bring up conflict, and ignoring things doesn't solve problems. No, it makes it worse. So, how did you did you develop any techniques that you would like to share with students who are <laughs> going to be one day faced with the same problems? Yeah, that's true. Um, thorough investigation, right? Documentation. A Ability to be direct. I think sometimes uh, the culture in this part of the world is a little bit too indirect. Directness is something people are afraid of. But if you're direct with a person, then there's nowhere for them to go. You've said it right to their face. If you're constantly trying to please them, then they engage in more subterfuge. That makes sense. Yes. Being direct is good. Yeah. These are simple but profound things. Man. Wow. Okay. So I want to change tracks, and I want to ask you a question that's actually a very personal favorite of mine. So I have known you for, you know, a year now. And, and as I started to know you and a lot of your colleagues, a lot of the students say the same thing. They resonate with the sentiment that she's so unique in her approach to being a dean. You have an open-door policy truly for all staff and students. You, are, you pepper your emails with memes and emoticons 
one of your colleagues loved that by the way and and <laughs> things that you do are not so traditional so what are your thoughts on on a more traditional role of a dean because many will mention you who thinks outside the box and and as i said the linkedins the facebooks meeting students where they are at and you are so full of personality that broods in all things you do how does this unique approach helps the relationship with students and your colleagues and is this subconscious or conscious well i think part of it's being honors dean i say if i were dean of engineering it's a very different job for one thing it's the scale is pretty big <laughs> and there's a large faculty piece and a very big staff so right there i'd say this is a little the scale is a bit different but also since we're focused on undergraduates solely i think that gives the honors dean a space to innovate with a particular group of students so that can be curricular innovation study abroad international undergraduate research now we support all those things but in let's say in engineering there would be a whole group of other folks would probably be working on that and not the dean because the dean might be charged more with the faculty piece the upper admin piece and then the fundraising so i see my colleagues are doing heroic work right. <laughs> in these other deans things but i also think medievalists tend to be kind of strange people <laughs> they just come out and say it uh anyway anybody that spends their entire life dedicated to studying people who have been dead for over a thousand years is a little strange <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, if you went to the big medieval conference every year, you would you would see that they're an interesting and eclectic crew of people. So, some of that's just being a medievalist probably. And how about the relationship piece? As you as you are in this role, open and free and so full of life. How does that influence the relationships with not just your colleagues but the students? Oh, well, the students are uh, they make me that way. <laughs> I mean, I uh think about the students I've taught in these honors classes like the ones that you're taking because they're self-selected they're among a mo- an amazing group of students but then they self-select like you did to take a course taught by another historian Charles Robinson on bad times right which is a history of student activism on this campus yes so and I've met the students in that class and it's <laughs> you know you couldn't hand pick a better group so i think you know we have a large group of honor students but then we have an entre- entrepreneurial core that engages purposefully and with a plan um with the honors college in a way that's kind of singular if that makes sense yeah 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 and is this subconscious or intentional do you make the intention to do that i think with these classes i do okay it's my favorite part of the job i love thinking up curriculum you know I don't always score. Sometimes there's a class that doesn't speak to your generation as well as <laughs> another one, but some usually we score pretty well, you know. I'm pretty think, pretty excited about next semester's classes. So, yeah. yeah. And, and and I mean speaking of next semester's classes, they're very good because in terms of the food matters, oh, right yeah. now inflammatory diseases and anxiety and all those things are on the rise and that is so much because of what we eat and how we eat and you are offering a course on just that. That is phenomenal. That is so timely that and that class is, so is going to rock the honors college. Yeah. So, it's it's <laughs> it's great. Now, I have a quote actually from one of your colleagues and I want to get your opinion on this. So, this colleague said Dean Kuhn has a way of making people feel seen, recognized, heard, and encouraged. It's what actually by Dr. Meera Kumar. Oh, I love her. 
So you started the A plus magazine and you've been in the leadership role when it was started. You started the honor CDN tradition the year before last. And you have done that in so many different ways. You started traditions, you started recognitions, you started giving awards out, so many of this. So why is it important for you to highlight others? Because it's fun. <laughs> you know, I will say my predecessor, Bob McMath, another historian, he was dean of the Honors College before me. Um, yeah, he, he actually started a lot of these things, like uh, A+. He did a whole series of really fabulous cross-college curricular endeavors. So historians love this kind of stuff. So it isn't just me. But I do like to showcase other folks. It's more interesting. That's great. Plus, I, the research, the, another great thing about this job is getting to learn what the research is in biomedical engineering. <laughs> you know, getting outside of Fulbright College and seeing what Walton College is doing in innovation or yeah. architecture and sustainable design you know, or education and all this cool stuff they do in uh, exercise science. And then ag is amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, the uh, College of Agriculture here is super impressive. So I would have never been able to do those kind yeah. of relationships and research and teaching that we've developed. And Food Matters is a great case. We've got the Dean of Law School, who does food law, Dr. Jenny Pop, Associate Dean of Honors, who's also an agricultural economist, and then Dr. Kurt Rome, who was the interim honors dean, right. and is a well-known horticulture professor. So they're going to do a multidisciplinary angle on food that's going right. to be, the legal part alone is just fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just really, really great. Um, okay. So my next question is actually, you've built so much on the foundation of Honors College, like you said, uh, Dr. Dr. McMath, right? Yes, McMath. Or I called him Abba. <laughs> Abba. You said when you applied to be the dean of Honors College that you hope to bring more scholarships into the program. The PATH program has grown and you have done that and you donated recently $30,000 and encouraged others to do so. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. You drive PATH scholars. You wanted to drive for diversity and inclusion. You have created advisory councils and boards. Um, and Dr. Pop told me you started six undergraduate schools in, one, in the same classroom. You started classes and curriculum development. You've done that. You are also involved with the Honors Arkansas, which is part of the entire Arkansas, the whole state's honors colleges. And they're, and they're amazing. <laughs> and 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 this was unheard of before you 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 your ten your tenure on the campus, you wanted to extend opportunities for more students to study abroad. You did H two passport, the honors to humanities program passport. You led honors study abroad programs, and you have introduced new ones. You've built on the curriculum that will make honors program an intellectual community. You wanted to you have done that. You said that, but you have actually done it. You have created new imaginative curricular experiences. You have brought engineering, business, and health professions. You have bad times, bad medicine, the pandemic, food matters, so much, so much more. So my question to you is, you have son, you've done all of this and more. Looking back, what are your thoughts on the progress you've made? Well, I think the curricular piece is going well, I have to say. Um, I love Honors Arkansas. Those, our colleagues, you know, I had no idea there are five honor, honors colleges in the state. I didn't even know that when I started, which is embarrassing, to tell you the truth. But we've met such great colleagues, and now we're doing classes where honor students from across the state can take, like pandemic. 
So that and we were um, community college students. We had such good students in in our pandemic course that when they transfer here, I know them. Mm-hmm. So I can hook them up with the dean of their college or or get them on a research team. I have to say, I, I love that part. Um, we're not as diverse as we should be. Um, it's still largely a white college, and, which is the case for honors colleges. And honors colleges are having to grapple now strongly with what you're learning in bad times. That is, honors itself has a certain sort of history that's problematic in some ways. So that's where we need to do a lot more. And we have a past path program path scholars are superior but we need more we need more scholarship money for students from underrepresented populations and geographies Mm -hmm. so that includes uh, the kids living up in the Ozarks and rural areas and small schools where if they have languages it's by satellite we just we need to recognize more what a lot of our students are up against I guess is what I would say for the next five years okay okay and what is your favorite memory as a dean? What's my favorite memory mm-hmm. of being a dean? Mm-hmm. Well, taking students on the Camino to Santiago. Wow. Yeah. What part about it? Going there? The, because the travel part is huge and it's beautiful. And there are videos out there. I'll link them below if people want to check them out. It's great. Because students give presentations on things they learned in class, which is phenomenal, by the way. So what part? The, the, yeah, because the, I had... Done pro- I had been on a lot of these sites more than once, so it wasn't just that, although it's always good. It was uh, the students presenting on site. I mean, you can watch the film. They're amazing. Yeah. I'll never forget uh, Jacob Purifoy up in that Cather Castle in the south of France describing what it would be like to be under siege with the medieval army coming up after you. That, that's Woo! great. <laughs> I know, right? It's just, it's great. Okay, so... As you said, you already said that the aspiration for the next five years is to bring more diversity. But what, besides being more diverse and inclusive, is on your radar? Well, we've started recently a nationwide honors association called the Council on Honors Education for APLU. And APLU is a, is, a, is a consortium of all large public universities and land-grant universities. So this is deans from the West Coast to the East Coast to the North to the South and working on similar issues. So we have our first conference on November 8th. And the first session is on racism and honors colleges. I know. Wow. And we're having a presidential panel to jump it off. And our own chancellor, Chancellor Joe Steinmetz, will be one of three presidents of universities speaking. So that's great. That's one thing. And then we would love to have, you know how in uh, STEM you have your REU, your mm-hmm. research experience for undergrads, mm-hmm. NSF supported. We were thinking about getting more pipelines among these colleges to send our students back and forth across the country and with a special eye towards pipelines for students from underrepresented populations. So I guess some of the stuff for the next phase is more national in focus, although we're going to continue the curricular craziness and the uh, honors passport. You know, our next honors passport is to Japan, and it's going to be superlative. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to go this May. We shall see. Wow. 
the REU piece being yeah. cool, that's going to change so many lives because so much of what I want to do and so many of my friends has come from the experience of going out and meeting new people. Well, I do think that that's part of the Honors College job. It's great to have students here, but we need to get them out. <laughs> you know, whether that's to MIT or to an international internship in Spain or language training in China, that's our role is to... Um, and we're lucky because we have the resources to do that. And we've just gotten more money from the Walton Family Foundation for internships. Now, I know in engineering, usually the internships are paid, but if you're in philosophy, that may not be the case. And yet philosophers make great employees in NGOs and other organizations. So that's kind of another piece that we're looking at. Yeah, and, and the big thing is when students go out and they come back, so many connections happen that were not there before. And I don't want to leave this place because of what I've learned outside. I was like, this needs to happen here. I'm going to make sure I'm going to stick around until that happens here. And only then may I leave. And it's it's phenomenal. Yeah. So I'm so glad you're doing that. Yeah. Truly. And then the other thing is our Futures Hub, which I think you know about because you know several of the people working in it. But uh, we have a brand. It's not an advising center. We defer to the colleges for curricular advising. But it's your next professional self, whether that's pre-health professions with Monica Moore or whether that's connecting you to industry with Louise Hancock's uh, directing you to resources or even advisors and research, Chelsea Hodge. I'm about to hire another person who will be in charge of cross-college interdisciplinary curricular adventures. So this will be our futures hub, again, for your next professional self. Wow. That, yeah. That's great. So as you said, hiring is also a big part of the dean. How is that like? How do you, do you have to do recruiting? Do you have to do interviewing? What's that aspect like? Well, recruiting is crucial, of course. You know, um, part of the reason the Honors College was founded was to keep super talented students like you <laughs> in the state. Um, and I like to think that we prepare them. We want, we want a number of them to stay here. I mean, that's part of our mission, too, is to reinvest in the state of Arkansas, whether that's in med medicine, public health, business, engineering. But we also want to see them go out on the trajectory that they want. So whether that's Harvard Med School or wherever, um, we, we have that twofold uh, mission, I'd say. But yeah, I have, we have a recruitment team here that's superb, you know, and a lot of honors colleges don't have their own recruitment team. And that was one of the s super smart decisions of my predecessor was to actually have in-house recruiters. Because I think honors recruiting is a little bit different than just straightforward recruiting. Honor students seek, and even in high school, they want that value added. They want something that's a little bit more intense and a little bit more, um, I don't know, global and innovative in scope. So yeah, I'd say the recruitment is, that's really, we're, that's a big part of our job here. And and the interviewing aspect, do you get to do some? I do, I do the Bowden Hammer interviews every year. We have two teams, and then we have a lot of faculty teams. The faculties do this; they do this voluntarily. There's no, you know, we have a nice reception for them. <laughs> I love the faculty here because you'll get a hundred people sign up. Many people say, by the way, that the interviewing of the fellows is their favorite event of the year. I've had so many faculty say that to me. 
They That's love it, but they're always blown away by the high school seniors. They're just like, I'm going to fire myself. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, these kids are coming in here and they're 17 and 18. They're super impressive. That's right. That's yeah. right. I mean, so many of my juniors are doing things I never thought was even possible at their age. So I'm, I'm proud to call them my colleagues and classmates. It's it's truly phenomenal. And they're all yeah. honor students, by the way. Well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, and biomedical engineering is largely an honors oh, department. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, okay, so now I want to kind of just go into, like, what are your heroes, role models, mentors, and why? Oh, dear. Hmm. Do they have to be living? No. Of course, the minute, as you know from bad times, the minute you pick somebody that's deceased, some part of their previous history that we didn't really know about will come out in ugly mm. ways. Yeah, Fulbright. I'm thinking about the Fulbright controversy, <laughs> although I actually knew that because I'm a historian. Okay. You know, the Southern Manifesto and his stand on certain rights, civil rights, is pretty well known to my colleagues over in old Maine, so that doesn't surprise me, but it's it's dangerous to have heroes. That's How about true. that? Wow. That's, know, a, that's a classic historian answer. But it is true, you know, but then I don't expect the ju- I don't expect the dead to always be so virtuous. I mean, look at Augustine of Hippo, even though I kind of admire him. He certainly has a record that is problematic by our standards. <laughs> that's true. Super problematic. I mean, he once he decided to convert to a particular type of Christianity, he became pretty intolerant of other types. So, yeah, I'm going to stay away from the heroes. Kind of like I think we should stay away from statues. Mm, that's right. You know, we've had this conversation, yeah. But statues of humans is probably a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> because there's got to be some other more um, abstracted way we can honor things. I don't know. And... Just putting people as symbols for years to come seems scary. And like you said, there's so much complexity to a person. And because of social media and constant connection, people are putting things out. And then two years later, they might have grown, but those things that they put out might come and harm not just their future, but so many people working with and around them. So that's what we advise everybody when we're recruiting. We always advise the high school students to be careful what they're putting out there in cyberspace because it will live on. Yeah. And you know, when you're starting to apply for things, even jobs or school, whatever, you can be haunted by cyberspace. True. True. Um, what do you think is lacking in the world right now? Besides, besides being more inclusive and diverse. A uh, very strong sense of history and its importance. Yeah. You know, the Fulbright piece is one example of many. We have to understand the context for where we are, which is based upon layers and layers of historical events, historical meaning that, yeah, I think Americans typically are not very historically invested in a way that other countries are. That's true. And, um, yeah, of course, I'm a little biased towards the history profession. But it is true. It it's is. Such good, such a good major. And the weird thing was, 
until I got to college and took classes like bad times, that type of history helps me define my future. You know, history of just facts and numbers and dates is not interesting. But just no, so not. Money. you can look them up. Exactly. You don't need that's not what historians do. I don't do that in my classes. They're all about writing and discussing. Yeah. Kind of like in bad times. And 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 I love that because yes. you know so much of what I learned in in my middle school ages it was so focused it seemed like on a single lens. You know, you were focused on what happened when, who yeah. were the people. And I get that, but also the bigger picture that why so what was missing it. I feel like getting to college and especially honors college it connected and clicked so yeah no you're right without answering why it's sort of like being a mathematician and not understanding why you're doing all of the um, equations right Right. i guess that separates somebody that's just doing it from rote memorization versus somebody that thinks about the beauty of mathematics exactly exactly (laughs) now you have already touched on this that you love the the leadership aspect, the faculty aspect, the interviewing aspect. But what makes a leader good? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't think there's one style. Probably the best thing is to really fit the style to yourself. You know, it's kind of like teaching. There's so many different styles of teaching, but if you try to co-opt somebody else's style, it doesn't really work. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you have to kind of figure that out first. True. Um, but I think, again, the uh, giving people a space to be successful. Right, other people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just taught um, Pope Gregory the Great with my class today, and, and that's sort of one of his big points, even though he was writing in the year 600. It's, it's this sort of humility for self in order to improve the lives of others yeah true in theory no he also admits that for humans that's very difficult (laughs) yeah i mean we are flawed by nature that's just what makes us humans uh but and that brings me actually to this unique question that maybe more so i'm just asking for advice but so many times and you know your colleagues have said this and you have yourself said this you'll get great ideas as you are brainstorming in the honors college you know your your my your, mad mad men and women out here exactly yes. so <laughs> what what happens is all these great ideas come up you take them and you lead with them but it is so difficult as a leader to recognize that one the idea came from your team and not just you Accepting that idea, recognizing that idea is good, and leading with it, making it yours, and truly believing in it. That's very difficult. What do you give advice to students or people who are listening to do that? Well, the team part's the best part. I mean, sitting around here by myself thinking of stuff, well, that wouldn't be very interesting. It's the uh, camaraderie up here in the Honors College. Well, I have the best crew on the planet why don't we just come out and say that but they also will correct like i tend to be overly extravagant maybe that's not always a bad thing but i think in times of 
financial and like public health crisis, it's probably not a good idea <laughs> to be overly, uh, what's the word? I don't know. I always want to go over the top. So I have a really great team that will say to me, whoa. <laughs> so that's a sort of checks and balances, right? And then you always want to hire people that are different than you are. I adore Jenny Pop, but we're very different. That's why it works. <laughs> if I had just duplicated myself, it wouldn't be nearly as good, right? That's, that takes a long time to figure out. <laughs> that's true. And it's hard to work with people who are different than you. How have you knacked it down? Well, I just do whatever she says. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, you definitely want to surround yourself with people that aren't like you. Definitely. Always. Okay. One of the strong things I've learned in them. And I've hired historians up here. Historians are good managers. I mean, that's just, they often, a historian will end up running businesses or running people in major in business. There's something very managerial about the past. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, true. It's understanding because... context for multiple things. So Exactly. But yeah, exactly. my best advice, if you go into management, which you're probably going to go into admin, I bet. God knows what you're going to do. <laughs> you have a good instinct for this anyway, you know. First piece is to understand your own issues, and the second piece is to find somebody that is different enough that will make up for those problems. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And you know, you yourself are a great leader to even say that. Understanding that you have issues and accepting and figuring them out, that, that's a big part. Anyway, so what do you wish you could tell your students that you knew when you were in our shoes, that would be helpful. Not worry about what other people think ever. That's the benefit of being older. Don't care. It's so tough. <laughs> Do not. Well, yeah, because it is. It's harder when you're younger. But that's the best. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not the only person that says this, but man, in my age, I'm just like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't care. That. Now, when I was your age, totally not like that, right? Yeah. Kind of a disaster, really. <laughs> okay, so that, that's good. That makes me feel hopeful. That You will shed gradually that attachment to worrying about others so much. That, yeah. Yeah, that just makes me more hopeful for the future. Now. Well, I'm I'll, sure in med school that must be very difficult, right? Oh, yes. Because it's very competitive, I imagine. You, you bring up a great topic, and I was going to get to this, but Jenny Pop, your, your colleague, and, and the Associate Dean of Honors College, she admires you deeply. Um, and one of the things she loved about you, and she brought up again and again in her email when I asked for you know, help, was Dean Kuhn has nagged and cracked the craft of collaboration over competition. And that's very difficult because what happens is, when people figure out or even realize that there's less spaces and somehow they see the competition at the people around them, there's, there's negativity and it manifests in ways that you don't expect it to. They don't expect it to, but it just comes into the relationship and it, it kind of destroys it. So, so you, as you talk about it, we are all trying to go into a field that truly is focused on collaboration and caring for others, but we end up becoming people that we hate each other. I'm not kidding. No, I believe you. So, 
so i don't even know what to do but you you truly like being surrounded by people like you i hope it will rub off you know and i won't try to become that negative energy person you know it's hard you have to be very intentional yeah. no, totally because it, it just creeps in yes. you don't even know yes so so that yeah, it is hard i agree but that's why i mean finding the right the med school that's the right fit for you i imagine their cultures are probably different i mean i don't know i went to graduate school back in the day when it was all library based and there there were some colleagues that would go check out all the books on purpose so that other grad students wouldn't be able to do the assignments <laughs> <laughs> what the heck? That's funny. I know because, uh, but part of it was the culture of that graduate school. They were ruthless. I mean, my colleagues in American history, they had this seminar. It was six hours of credit, met twice a week for three hours, two books a week. Oh my goodness. And the faculty announced to them, well, there's a lot of people in this room who don't know what's going on, and we're not about to help you. Oh my Just, God. Don't go to a grad school like that. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So you, in one of the other interviews outside of school, and you said, you know, earlier in this interview as well, it's like you love hiking, reading, and traveling. Now, this is post-COVID. Some of your, you know, you have also said some of your favorite spots are beach in Europe, and you have traveled a whole lot of that just leading, you know, study abroad trips. So post-COVID, what are your plans as to if you get time from your very busy schedule, where would you go? Any place? I'd like to go to India, actually. Oh. Yes, I've always wanted to go to India, and I haven't. That would you have not been to no, India? No, I know it's terrible with my interests. Oh wow! If 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 it is possible, me and Dr. Kumar should take you. Yes. We can be your guides. That'd be great. Oh wow! It would be great. No, I would love to go to India, and I want to do a passport. Honors passport in India. Um, yeah. I don't want it just to be Western, obviously. We've done a lot of Western. We did Sicily. We did the Camino. We did Vienna and Prague. We're doing Japan. We do. We did do Peru twice. But yeah, we need to move. We need to move to different areas, I would say. So India is definitely on the radar there. That's good. I am. That makes me so happy. You have no clue. So, this is kind of personal to me because I have a sister, she's 12, and as she grows up in the American culture as an Indian American, it's very difficult to navigate two personalities. I imagine. <laughs> and, and especially certain things that have happened makes me want to know your perspective on this. So, so many people say that feminism is dead. And progress that, you know, women have made is kind of backtracked. And and being just a dean, you have had so many firsts, not just as a female dean, but just firsts in general. For example, the multidisciplinary curriculum and so much of it. So I want to know, what are your thoughts on progress of just feminism? And what do you say to girls looking up to you? saying, hey, man, what's going to happen in the future? Well, yeah, it is worrisome, of course. But it always ha I mean, here comes the historian again. <laughs> and the history of uh, women, women's history throughout the centuries is very instructive because it does go through these different 
phases. I won't say of empowerment in the pre-modern past, but there's certainly places where female achievement was pretty brilliant, like in the late Middle Ages. I would say, uh, looking at our honor students, I've never seen so many female mathematicians in my life. <laughs> the women are coming in in STEM and math. You know, not that that makes, it just, it makes more diversity. When I first started here, you wouldn't have seen that. I mean, the engineering school was largely male. Well, you must notice in your classes that that's not true anymore. Mm -hmm. So the progress is structural, it's slow. But I think that uh, the young women I'm meeting here are kind of mind-blowing in what they even come in with the kind of things that they've already done in research and robotics and you know civic engagement. They're, they're superior. So I'm pretty optimistic, actually. This is going to sound weird about... Okay. I understand that living in the two worlds, though. I have enough friends who aren't American to tell me that American gender values are super weird. Yeah. They are, and they are. Because, I don't know, it's almost bipolar in a way. On the one hand, it seems advanced, but it isn't. It's super conservative. Very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I mean... You are right. Because it, the messages sent to young women in this country are just so weird. <laughs> because, and I'm I'm glad you brought that point up because it's it's like we feel we are progressive, but when we start getting to the layers like onions and you go deeper and deeper, and maybe not so much, you know. No. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We have made so many progressive things. Those are good. I'm not discrediting them. But the but messaging is bad, actually. I will, in that regard. Yeah. The messages sent to young females, well, actually, in some ways, to, to both sexes or multiple sexes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's strange. Well, I'm glad that you are hopeful and it helps me. I am. Yes. Yes. So now, what's your ideal relaxing day when you don't have work? Don't have honors college. Don't what have classes. I got a grade all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but do you do you grade or do you go out? I or? like to walk dogs on long walks. This is a great area, as you know, to there's so many trails around here. Oh, and God. I haven't been on a lot of them. You should check out the Greenway Trail. Okay, I will. I don't think I've been on that one. It's great. It goes around the loop of people. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Oh I maybe I've been on part of that. Yeah, can't remember. But yeah, I um, I like doing that. Obviously, I like to read. All historians do. Are you are you reading anything outside of your classes? No, today? I have things that I'm supposed to be reading, but I haven't. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 Now, what are some words of wisdom and quotes you would want to share or impart as we come close to the end of this interview? That you would like to end with? Oh gosh, well, I'm about to give a lecture on the Benedictines, so I might give you the Benedictine motto, is that all right? That's fine. Wisely unknowing and knowingly unwise. Okay. <laughs> Wisely unknowing and knowingly, knowingly unwise. unwise. Yeah, the ultimate humility in the face of knowledge, right? Yeah. I love that. That is kind of like a double-edged sword, yeah, isn't, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of wisdom and hopefulness, well, what... that's kind of like our honors college motto, right? Can I use that one? Oh, Audax at yes. sapiens. I love that. Bold and yet wise. It's kind of Benedictine, a little bit. Yes. Although it's also classical in a way. 
How did you come up with that, by the way? The tradition, the the handshake, and all of that. Well, part of it is uh, my director of development studies esoteric groups. <laughs> okay. And so some of the stuff. Well, we took a for the Latin initiation ceremony. We took an ancient Christian induction ceremony, and we kind of remade it for universities. Wow. And then I had my colleague, who's a brilliant Latinist. Over there, Charlie Muntz. I had him edit it because, yeah, he has such a great, beautiful, complicated connection with Latin. Um, so some of it is just, well, we're a bunch of weirdos up here. So we <laughs> thought we wanted to do something fun for graduation, but still had some of the old trappings of ceremony. So we have the goblet and we have the right. scepter, <laughs> the sword. Where did my sword go? Oh well. Anyway, we've got the Latin. We've got the Latin pen and the Latin motto. Why not? Yes. I mean, yeah. Well, as we come to the end of this, I do want to highlight something that I felt very touched by: your humility, your ability to recognize and encourage making mistakes, not caring about others, figuring yourself out so you can figure out who you want to be with or be surrounded by, and Moreover, you championing collaboration and putting the spotlight on others when you know they need them sorely, and all of these qualities—if I can emulate at least ten percent of them—I think I will have done the job that I'm here for. Oh, so thank gonna, you! So you're going to do brilliantly, Smith. I have good taste. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the great interview.